we're going to talk about the story of Ruth, or in Hebrew, Ruth, or in an Ashkenazic pronunciation, Rus. We're actually, we have a class coming up in a few weeks about the difference between Ashkenazic and Sephardic pronunciations. I know I get a lot of questions on that. So, so, we ha- so the book of Rus, or Ruth, is one of what's called the five Megillot, or five scrolls. Five scrolls that are read on different occasions. As we've mentioned before, we have 24 books of scripture. 24 holy books um, as set by the men of the great assembly in the days of Ezra about 2300 years ago. They set the final holy books um, in Judaism. Um, They are split into the five books of Moses, which is the Torah. Um, The books of our prophets, the Nevi'im, which are eight books of prophets. Um... And then there are the Ketuvim, the books of the writings. Some time ago we did a class where we went through in detail the Tanakh. Now in the Ketuvim, in the books of writings, there are five books that are fairly short books that are read on different occasions. Um, They are the book of Esther, which we read on Purim, the book of um, Shir HaShirim, Song of Songs, which is traditionally read on Passover, the book of Ruth, which is read on Shavuot, the book of Echa, Lamentations, which is read on Tisha B'Av, and the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, which is read on Sukkot. So there is a tradition to read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Um, in some synagogues, they actually read it, <coughs> excuse me, after the Torah reading, they'll read it um, in the synagogue. Our custom is not to read it after the Torah reading, but we do read it as part of the um, Read, as part of the readings or the study on the eve of Shavuot when we stay up all night we have a special tikkun or a special book that we traditionally read and um, in that we read the book of Ruth why is the book of Ruth read on Shavuot? so a number of reasons are given why the book of Ruth is read on Shavuot for one as we'll see Ruth um, is the great grandmother or great grandmother of King David King David, we have a tradition, died on the festival of Shavuot. Did you say great grandmother? Great grandmother. Great grandmother of David. King David died on Shavuot. Because he died on Shavuot, it's connected with David, so therefore, to commemorate David, we read the book of Ruth. Another reason given is Ruth is um, essentially the story of a woman who converted to Judaism. Um, Really, while we mention other converts throughout Scripture, Ruth is the only one whom we really tell her story in detail. Um, Shavuot, of course, commemorates when Judaism began, when our people joined the covenant with God, converted to Judaism, and so therefore Ruth is a fitting book to read um, during the... um, is a fitting book to read um, on Shavuot. Another reason is Ruth takes place during the harvest season, as we will see in a moment. And so um, the book of Ruth um, is then, uh, Shavuot is the festival of harvest, Chag HaKatzir, and so therefore it's a fitting book to read on Shavuot. So that's why we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Sorry? We begin the harvest with Shavuot. It's the beginning of the harvest season. So, so the story of Ruth takes place in a period known as the Judges. Shvot Hashoftim. Now we have a book called the Book of Judges, one of the one of the eight books of our prophets, 
and it's a book that goes through the history of this period. The period of Judges is a period that goes from the death of Joshua, who led the people into the Promised Land, student of Moses. So this is over 33 or 3,300 years ago, um, just under 30, uh, just un, uh, over 3,300 years ago, until um, and a lot, the period lasts for about 350 years. During this period, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has not yet been chosen as God's permanent place. Um, there is a temporary temple in the town of Shiloh, um, which we were at when we were in Israel. Those that were in our group went with us to Shiloh where we got to see where that temple stood. So uh, there was a temporary temple in Shiloh. During this period, Israel had no king and no real centralized leadership. Every tribe had its own leadership, and Israel was very tribal. Um, there was what was called a shofet. The shofet was a judge whose role was to be the leader of Israel. There was a Sanhedrin, a supreme council that was served as the spiritual leadership. There was a temple that served as the center of service. But in general, Israel did not have a centralized government. And um, the role of the shofet mostly was to defend the country against invasion, um, to raise armies from the different tribes when necessary to defend the army against invasion. So this happens during this period. Um, there's some debate as to how far into this period it happened. The Talmud says that one of our heroes in this story, Boaz, is, was actually the judge known the Shofet, which was the leader of Israel, known as Ivtan, and uh, he would have lived towards the end or the second, in the second half of this 350-year period, um, about 100, 150 years before the end of this period. So this story begins uh, with a fellow called um, Elimelech. Elimelech is a man from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, or Bethlehem is a town just south of Jerusalem. Um, it's there today. It's most famous for the place where Rachel, Rachel, is buried. Rachel's tomb is in Bethlehem. It's very close to Jerusalem. Today, it's pretty much a suburb of Jerusalem. It's, it's, not, it's a couple miles outside Jerusalem. And so he's from, um, Elimelech is from Bethlehem. He's a very wealthy man. And there is a famine in the land. And so... Elimelech leaves the land of Judah, where he lived. He was from the tribe of Judah, southern Israel. And uh, he decides to go eastward to the land of Moab. Moab was a nation that lived on the east side of what today is the Dead Sea. They lived in the mountains, um, what today would be Jordan, east of the Dead Sea. And so he decides to leave. The Talmud tells us the reason why Elimelech decided to leave was not because he was lacking food, but rather he was very wealthy and very successful, and he was being asked to donate and to help out the poor during this famine, and he really did not want to give away his wealth uh, to help out his brethren, his people during the famine, and so therefore he left the country to avoid having to give part with his wealth to help support other people. So it doesn't give us a very good sense of him being such a great person. Anyway, he leaves with his wife, whose name is Naomi, and his two sons, whose names are Machlon and Kilion. Elimelech comes to Moab. He's not there very long. He dies in Moab. Um, our sages say punishment. He should not have left. 
Um, and so he dies. His wife, Naomi, and her two sons remain over there. Um, gradually, as we'll see, they lose their wealth. Meanwhile, his, the two sons grow up. They both get married to Moabite women. One woman's name is the uh, one son, Mahlon, gets married to Arpa, and the second son, Kilion, gets married to a woman called Ruth or Ruth. And they're there for 10 years total in the land of Moab. Mahlon and Kilion both die. Um, and uh, they, without having any children. Now, Nami is alone. She has no family anymore. Um, and uh, all she's left with is two daughters-in-law, Moabite daughters-in-law. She has no money left. She has nothing. She's heard the famine is over in the land of Israel. She decides to go back home to where she's from, to Beit Lechem. Her daughters-in-law, who seem to have a close relationship with her, um, start going with her. They want to go back with her to the land of Judah. She turns to them and she says, why are you coming with me? Um, I appreciate your friendship, but go back to your land, go back to Moab. Um, stay over there. You'll do a lot better over there in Moab than coming to the land of Judah. Um, I don't have any children for you to marry further. She goes and says, even if I would be able to have children, it would take many, many years um, for them to be old enough to even get married. So you will not be able to remain in my family. Um, and what point is there for you to come with me? So, um, so Arpa, the older daughter-in-law, decides to indeed leave. She leaves um, and goes back to, uh, and stays in Moab. She remains as a Moabite, goes back to her gods or idols or whatever she had. Um, the other daughter-in-law, though, Ruth, refuses to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, And she says, do not try to stop me from coming with you. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you sleep, I will sleep. Your nation is my nation, and your God is my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so she, has, she insists not only on coming with Naomi, but she really wants to join the Jewish people. She recognizes God, <laughs> and she wants to join the Jewish people. Um, our sages say, although it doesn't say it clearly over here, that clearly Nami has given Ruth some strong um, backgrounders or warnings about Judaism. Um, she tells her that um, in Judaism we believe in God. You've got to believe in God. Um, we have rules as to what we have to keep. We have Shabbat. You can't go wherever you want. Um, Shabbat has certain limits to how far you could go. Um, you cannot, you, you, you cannot um, in your, your home, you have to have a mezuzah. Um, that's what she means, wherever you sleep, I will sleep. And so um, we have special rules for burial. And she tells her some of the different rules for Judaism. And despite the difficulties of what it would take to become Jewish, um, Ruth decide, insists nevertheless on coming with um, Naomi. Now, Naomi, of course, has no money at this time. She's a pauper, and so she, Ruth would be starting from scratch. She also would be coming to a people where she knows nobody, and she's a stranger. 
And so she still wants to become part of this people. She still insists on joining the Jewish people. Therefore, Ruth is our prototype convert. She's our ideal convert. She's the one who, despite the costs, despite the difficulties in becoming Jewish, despite the challenges, she still wants to be Jewish. Now, some time ago, we did a class on conversion, and I'm not going to go into the great details of what it takes to become Jewish, because I want to tell the story of Ruth, but um, our tradition tells us that when someone wants to become, join the Jewish people, just as in the first time when we originally made a covenant with God, we had to commit to following all of God's commandments. If somebody today wants to join the Jewish people, they must make that commitment to following all of God's commandments that are relevant to them. There are 613 commandments. Most commandments are not relevant to every person, but one must keep the commandments and halacha, Jewish laws, as relevant to them. Now, making a commitment without knowing what you're getting yourself into is not good enough, as Nami did for Ruth. You've got to give them some background. In other words, they have to know what they're getting themselves into. They have to appreciate the, what the commitment entails. You do, they don't have to know every single law. It's not realistic to expect someone to know every law. But they have to have a pretty good idea of what they're getting themselves into before they make this commitment for this commitment to be considered valid. Ruth is explained by Naomi what the commitment would take. And despite the difficulties um, in it, she makes that commitment nonetheless. We know that Judaism is passed familiarly through the mother. Does it, can a convert start and pass Judaism sure. along? Sure. What happens if they had children before they converted? Only, only a child born from someone who's Jewish will be automatically Jewish by birth. So if you have children before, you're con before you, a woman converts, those children are not Jewish unless they convert as well. But, um, but yes, once someone does convert, the covenant that we make with God is a one-way covenant. In other words, you cannot leave. Once you're in, you're in. There's no way out. And so it's a very big undertaking conversion. Um, there's no way to undo it. Um, I think I mentioned then when we did the class on conversion that when I was a child, our local Jewish newspaper, which was not very... Um, which was somewhat secular um, or anti-religious, once had a complaint that the local Beth Din, the local court, um, is very quick to do divorces and very slow to do conversions. Um, and there's a simple reason for that, because divorces generally can always be, um, can always, you can always undo them. In other words, you can always remarry. And there's some people that have done that. Unless you're a Cohen, yeah. Um, but, right, and they probably weren't quick to do Cohen divorces. So you can generally undo that, you can, or re, remarry, while conversion, there's no way out once you convert. It's a lifetime commitment for you and all your future descendants. So it's a, it's a much more serious commitment. So, um, I thought if a woman converts and she has children... After she converts. No. Before, before, then they are not automatically Jewish now. No, they have to go through conversion as well. So getting back to the story of Ruth. So Ruth goes back with Naomi to Beis Lechem. And they come back and people are shocked to see Naomi. Is this Naomi who when she left was this wealthy woman 
um, wife of Elimelech, and now she comes back, a widow, no children, a pauper without a penny to her name. And um, so they find, apparently, a place to live in Beis Lechem. They have no income. They have no source of livelihood. And so right now, it is the beginning of the harvest season when they come back. Now, Naomi has a um, first cousin, or um, Elimelech has a first cousin. In fact, the Talmud says that Elimelech and Nami themselves were first cousins, so it was a shared first cousin, which was common for people to marry relatives, um, whose name was Boaz. Boaz was a leader. Um, as we said, the Talmud says that Boaz was actually a shofet, leader of all of Israel, a very successful, wealthy man. Anyway, Ruth, uh, Nami doesn't notice or think of Boaz yet. So Nami asks her daughter-in-law, who's presumably much younger than her, to go get some food for them. They have nothing to eat. Um, they have nothing. And so... Um, Nami, uh, and so Ruth goes out. Now, in Jewish law, every Jew, uh, Israel was then an agrarian society. Everybody had farms. Um, as when we first moved into the land and everyone was given a plot of land to farm. Um, and so everybody had farms. And so um, there were rules for when you had a farm, you had to, and you harvested grain, you had to leave over any if while you were harvesting the grain, if you miss any stalks of grain, you could not go back and harvest it. If you dropped any stalks um, as you were gathering them, you could not go back and pick them up. <laughs> you also had to leave the corner of the fields, um, for, and all that was left for the poor. Um, and so Ruth and Nami are legitimately poor, and so Ruth goes out to collect grain in the nearby fields, um, for them from these grains that were left for the poor for them to eat. Unknown to Ruth, she goes, she ends up in the field belonging to Boaz, whom, as we said, sorry, Boaz was Elimelech, uh, Boaz was Elimelech's nephew. Sorry, nephew, not cousin. Um, Boaz was Elimelech's nephew. So, Boaz comes to, the, to visit his field. He's the owner of the field. He has lots of workers working there. He comes to visit and he notices this girl who is collecting grain among the other, perhaps there are other paupers there. He notices this girl and he asks Samuel, somebody who he does not recognize, and he asks people, who is this girl? And so they tell him, oh, she is a Moabite girl who came back with Naomi from Moab. She has returned with Naomi from Moab, and um, she, um, she has become Jewish. She has converted to Judaism. And so uh, and she, they have nothing. They're paupers, and she's collecting grain. So Boaz calls, goes over to her, and he said, I've heard about you, and you are always welcome to come and collect grain in my field. And not only that... Um, I'm going to tell my workers not to bother you at all. If you are thirsty, you're welcome to take water from the water that I supplied to my workers. Um, and uh, she says, why? Why are you being so generous to me? Why, do you, um, why are you, um, I'm a stranger, why are you doing this to me? And he says, I've heard about you and I've heard about your great sacrifice 
to um, after your um, husband has died that you left your home, you left your family, and you came here to join the Jewish people, and God should reward you for this. Um, and so um, she thanks him very much for it, and she um, Boaz then continues and says, not only can you drink with them, but even at, when the workers stop to eat lunch, you're welcome to join in their lunch as well, that, he was, that Boaz was supplying to his workers. Anyway, um, so she then comes home. She goes back to her, um, she gra- collects a lot of grain. She comes back to her mother-in-law and she shows her the grain and she tells her everything that happened, um, how she met this fellow. And she says, what is his name? His name is Boaz. She says, well, Boaz is a relative of ours. He is um, her, ex, her husband's nephew, Elimelech's nephew. He is a relative of ours. And um, keep collecting there throughout the harvest. He is, maybe he will be able to help us out. Um, and so... Um, so Ruth continues to collect in Boaz's field grain throughout the harvest, and that's how they have what to eat throughout that harvest season. And then um, the harvest season is over, and now Naomi comes up with a plan for their long term, or for Ruth and for herself, um, for them to um, be helped over the long term. So what we weren't told yet was that Elimelech, Nami's husband actually owned land, owned land in the land of in Beislechem, as any other Jew would have would own land because it had been split up among the different tribes and every Jew owned land. Elimelech, Nami's husband, owned land in Beislechem. Now, Nami, when she, because she was very poor and needed money to live on, she had sold the land that. Elimelech had owned in Beislechem. Now, the law in the Torah tells us that the ancestral land that we were given when we first entered the land of Israel, when we lived on that land, would then pass down from father to son, from fa- would stay in the family from generation to generation. If you sell that land, you cannot sell it forever. You can only sell it short term until the Yovel, until the Jubilee year. When the Jubilee year comes, it reverts back to the family that it originally belonged to. So you're able to lease that land until the Jubilee year. So that's essentially what Naomi had done with Elimelech, with her husband Elimelech's land. She had leased the land to somebody else until the Yovel, until the Jubilee year. Now, the law is that if the person who leases the land, their family land, until the Jubilee year... Um, if they somehow get the money to buy it back before the Yovel, the Jubilee year comes, at any time they're allowed to buy out the lease from the leasee who they leased it to. Not only they're allowed to buy out the lease, but any of their next of kin who would, is allowed to buy out the lease as well um, from the leasee who had bought it. And so and then the next of kin would get to keep it um, because it would eventually go to them regardless. So Nami had this land. So she wants to, she wants to, the land to be bought back. Um, her next of kin has the right to buy back this land, to purchase back the lease. 
and then whoever purchases the next of kin who purchases back the purchases back the least will then because they will also be Elimelech's heir since Elimelech has no children um, his two sons have died and they had no children um, so Elimelech's next of kin will eventually whoever purchases the land will then get to keep the land once the Yovel once the jubilee year comes now, there was a rule. So those are, that's the Torah rule that was originally made. Now, over the years, they added another rule. The Torah has a rule of, called Yibum, Leverite marriage, which is if a woman dies, if a man dies, sorry, without children, then the brother of the man would have to marry his wife or perform a ceremony called Chalitza. We don't do the... Yibum anymore, we only perform the chalitza ceremony, and we still do it till today. If somebody, again, if a man dies without children, his wife must perform this chalitza ceremony with his brother. Um, and so the reasoning behind it is that this woman should not be um, left alone, but also that the name of the deceased should then continue through the brother or through the family that marries this woman. So they, so what happens if there is no brother? There is no requirement for Yibo. <laughs> There's no requirement for anyone to marry this woman. However, they had instituted a rule that for the ne- if someone has sold land and then died, for the next of kin to buy back their land, they have to marry the wife of the deceased. Um, and that way, they would keep the name of the deceased going on the land, or keep their name alive, and um, that way also help out this woman who is now widowed and all alone. So Nami, as we said, had this field that Elimelech had owned, that she had sold, at least until the Jubilee year. Her next of kin is now able to buy back this land, and if they buy back this land, then when the Yoba, when the Jubilee year comes, they will then get to keep it. Boaz is her nephew, a cousin of um, Ruth's husband, Kilion. And so since Kilion technically had title to this land after his father Elimelech died, so if, um, if they can get Boaz to buy back the land, it would be conditioned on Boaz marrying Kilion's wife, Ruth. Now even though Ruth herself was not Jewish when she was married to Kilion, which would not really be, according to Jewish law, legitimate marriage. Nevertheless, Nami insisted that whoever buys back that land should, and wanted the courts to insist that whoever buys back the land should have to marry Ruth. So, So that's her plan to somehow get Boaz to marry Ruth, and that will, of course help Ruth, she'll be married to this wealthy man, and help herself as well. For sure they would not leave her alone either, and that way it will also keep the memory of her husband and her children alive as well. That's her plan. Yes, Andy? So the wife is never considered the next of kin? Not in Jewish inheritance, no. We could do another class on Jewish inheritance. It's more complicated than that. In other words, there's some comp- complexity. So now, so that's the plan. To get, now, 
to their luck, um, we are told Boaz, who seems to have already been an adult and a successful man, um, his wife had actually just died. That's what the Midrash tells us. His wife had just died prior to Naomi coming to the um, coming to back to Judah, coming back to Israel, and so he was a widower. So it was actually a perfect shidduch. It was a perfect, perfect match, perfect match. So Naomi comes up with the plan. With the, t- tells Ruth the following. Here's what you're going to do. Boaz is our relative, and I want to try to get him to buy back this land. And as a condition to buying back this land, he's going to have to marry you. So here's what you're going to do. Instead of just going to Boaz and asking him straight out, or maybe hiring a matchmaker to um, make this proposal, I have a different plan. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to wash yourself. You'll dress up. And then what you'll do is now the harvest season is over. After the harvest season comes the threshing season. They have all this grain. So the grain is brought down to these big silos where it's stored. And then in these silos, next to the silos, they have threshing floors where they thresh the grain, which basically means take the kernels out of the chaff or out of the um, stalks that they grow in and remove the kernels so they can then grind it into flour. So they're in the threshing process. So Boaz is definitely hanging out over there on the... Um, uh, uh, is hanging out over there by, the, by his silos and um, in the, where the threshing is taking place. And the threshing presumably was indoors. And so what you will do is you'll go to the place... So he doesn't go home when he's during the threshing season. He rather stays and sleeps over there in the silo. Um, and he stays there perhaps to protect his grain from intruders. He guards it himself. And so what you'll do is you'll go down when nobody's looking and you'll go into the silo. He'll be having dinner. You'll go inside. You'll hide. You'll wait for him to go to sleep. When he goes to sleep, you'll lie down near him. And then you'll wait to see what he will do. <laughs> That's what she tells us. Now, why did she go through this elaborate plan? The book of Ruth doesn't tell us what happened. But when we read oh, why this happened, why Nami decided to do this, um, but... When we read that, when we read further, we're going to soon discover why Ruth, not Ruth, couldn't do this the regular way and just hire a matchmaker or just ask somebody to make this offer to Boaz. You could buy back this land; you'll get all this extra land, but you got to marry Ruth in exchange. He clearly liked Ruth, as we had seen earlier. He was impressed by her, at least for the fact that she had come to, um, she had come to convert. She had already converted. She converted as soon as she came. Yes, she was already a Jewish woman. Jewish woman, yes. But didn't this all take place out in the field? No? This happened out in the field with a silos on. With a silos on. So she does this. She does exactly this. Now, just a little bit of Jewish law. Jewish law forbids any sexual relation outside of marriage um, and has always forbidden that. And so that is clearly forbidden. Um, now, Jewish law today also forbids yichud. Yichud means it's forbidden for a man and woman who are not 
married and not immediate relative to ever be alone together. It's a prohibition called yichud. It is forbidden um, for them to be for a man and woman to be alone, just as um, men and women touching is also forbidden in Jewish law. However, however, the prohibition of yichud began in the days of King David. It actually was in response to a very specific incident that happened in the days of King David. Um, and so the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, in the days of King David, about almost 400 years into, into, Judea, into the beginning of Judaism, almost 3,000 years ago, um, forbade men and women ever being alone together. However, Boaz, who is the great-grandfather of David, um, is before this rule was made. So there was no prohibition for a man and woman to be alone, although any, um, uh, although uh, for a man and woman to have any uh, sexual interaction was definitely prohibited. So anyway, she comes, um, she does exactly as her mother-in-law had instructed, follows orders, um, she hides in the, in the um, silo, Boaz finishes eating, he lies down after he falls asleep, she lies near him, Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and he gets very afraid, he realizes there is a woman right next to him. And so he turns to her and he says, who are you? What are you doing here? And she said, I am your, I am Ruth. And um, I would like you to marry me. And in exchange, that's a proposal. And in exchange, the field that my husband, uh, Kilion, had owned, his father's field, Elimelech's field, that has since been leased to somebody else, you are the next of kin, and you can get purchase back that purchase back the lease and then have that field as yours forever if you marry me. And so Boaz says, um, very good that you have um, proposed. I would be happy to marry you. Better that you came to me than to somebody else. But, he says, but, he says, there is a catch over here. The catch over here is that I am not your husband's next of kin. I am not your husband's next of kin. Your husband's next of kin is actually somebody else. He is our uncle. In other words, Boaz was Elimelech's nephew. But Elimelech actually had a brother. And the brother was technically the next of kin. He's a little bit closely, more closely related than the nephew, than, or than Boaz. So the brother is the next of kin. So really he has a, the right ahead of me to purchase back that lease before I do. And together with that, you can condition purchasing back that lease on him marrying you. But, um, but he has the right to the field before I do. And so, um, so he says, so Boaz says, stay here tonight. Don't leave in the middle of the night. And um, he, um, 
And let's see, tomorrow we'll meet with our uncle, whom we are not given a name. He is called Plony Almoni. Plony Almoni in Hebrew is the equivalent of John Doe. In, um, so he's given a no name, anonymous, for whatever reason. He's not given a name. And if he refuses to purchase back the field, then I will do so. So he has right of first refusal. He has right of first refusal. He's that's a closer relative. That's not his father. That's not his father. It's an uncle. Boaz's father's name was Salmon. He has another uncle, Salmon, and Elimelech have another brother whose name was, um, who doesn't have a name, John Doe, Pony Alon. We don't know his name. So Boaz says, remain here with me. But Boaz does not touch her because they are not married and he is forbidden from doing so. Um, and so Boaz does not touch her. Um, the, but she stays there through the night. Now, this, by the way, the Midrash points out, this is a very different to Boaz's own ancestor. Boaz's own ancestor, Judah, Yehuda, um, had two children, twins, with Tamar. Tamar had been Boaz's, uh, Yehuda's daughter-in-law and um, Tamar, um, whom Yehuda refused to allow to marry his son after two sons died, two of her husbands died. He didn't trust her. He refused to allow her to marry his third son, Shelah. And then she seduced Yehuda, and they ended up having twins together. And one of the, the uh, older of those twins was Peretz, who was actually Boaz's great-great-great-grandfather, the son of Judah. There, unlike Yehuda, who had been seduced by Tamar, um, Boaz over here is not seduced by Ruth and um, controls himself um, and he's going to marry Ruth as we'll see soon. But he also ends up being the third husband in the so, sequence that's passed on. <laughs> yes, and he also ends up being similar kind of story. There's a lot of similarities between Boaz's story and Yehuda's story. Um, and here in a sense, Boaz makes up for what we call in Hebrew tikkun, fixes um, what Yehuda had done. No, there's a law that forbids someone who gets divorced or the spouse dies from marrying for three months. Days, three months, 90 days. Oh, oh that's it. 90 days. Um, there's, a, there's a similar law that when someone converts also that forbids them from marrying from 90, for 90 days. Um, and Ruth, our sages say, would have waited 90 days, and that's why she waited till the end of the harvest season. It would have been 90 days by then. It had been 90 days since his wife died. Oh, since his wife died. So... So anyway, the next morning, Boaz um, and Ruth go to the um, Bethden, which is at the gate of the city. That's where the courts were traditionally. And um, Boaz calls um, 10 people, 10 of the elders together. And then he calls um, his uncle, Plony Almoni. And he um, tells Plony Almoni, your brother Elimelech has died. He left the field behind, he left his fields behind, which have been leased to somebody else, but and a relative has the right to buy them, and whichever relative buys them will be able, buys out the lease, will be able to keep them forever. Um, however, so you are the next of kin, you're the only surviving brother of Elimelech, you have the right to buy this field. 
Um, however, um, generally we have a, a um, tradition that whoever buys a uh, whoever buys the field of the next of kin once they've died must marry the widow as well. And so, therefore, since Machlon has since Kilion, sorry, has le- left a widow, Ruth. Um, in order to buy this field, you need to marry the widow. The widow is Naomi. Sorry? <laughs> well, Naomi was, didn't want to get married at this point. No, she was the widow. She's the widow of Elimelech. After Elimelech died, technically his sons owned the field. So it's really their field. Ah, yeah. So they're the next of kin, really. Um, and they're the ones who have the field, and so it's really, Ruth is really the widow. And so you'd have to marry Ruth. Now, even though it wouldn't be exact, because Ruth was never really halachically married, because she wasn't Jewish at the time, um, but still, the Bethden was insisting on applying this Boaz, um, and the Bethden were insisting on applying this law at Ruth and Naomi's request to this situation as well, in order to ensure that Ruth... Um, can, uh, in order to, um, for Ruth to get married, in order for them to have a way to take care of themselves, and also in order to keep alive the memory of Elimelech and his two sons. So Ploni Almoni says, absolutely not. I would love to buy, that, to buy the lease of that field and get that field, but I will not buy Ruth. I will not marry Ruth, sorry. Why will I not, why does he refuse to marry Ruth? So, Sorry? Because she is a Moabite. So, there had been an old debate in Jewish law. The Torah says that while any woman who converts, or any man who converts, can join the Jewish people and can marry any member of the Jewish people, with the exception of Kohanim. A Kohen is not allowed to marry a convert. But anyone else, any convert, is allowed to marry any Jew whom they wish. However, the Torah says that there are two nations, the nations of Ammon and Moab, two nations that lived east of Israel, that refused us passage when we traveled through the, um, they, when we traveled through the desert. And they were um, actually relatives. They were the sons of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And we are not allowed to marry Ammonites or Moabites that convert to Judaism. So even if they convert to Judaism, they cannot marry another Jew who was a, from originally the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that means that Ruth has a bit of a problem. Um, she's a Moabite, and Jews are forbidden to marry Moabites. In fact, her children will have the same problem. Since she is a Moabite, her children will not be able to marry a fellow Jew either. Now, the Torah, the Torah says that when the Torah says that a Moabite may, and an Ammonite may not marry another Jew if they convert, the Torah is unclear as to whether that is just Moabite or Ammonite men that convert or also Moabite and Ammonite women that convert. Now, there had been a debate for some time among Jewish scholars as to whether that rule, that prohibition, applied to Moabite women as well. Now, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, had already given its ruling that Moabite and Ammonite women were permitted to marry other Jews. However, because of this long-ongoing debate, 
many Jews were hesitant to marry Moabite or Ammonite women since there had been Jewish scholars that said such people were forbidden to marry. Ploni Almoni says, I will not marry a Moabite woman because any children that she has, I'm afraid they'll have trouble finding a shidduch. They'll have trouble finding someone to marry because there were many Jews who would refuse to marry the child of a Moabite woman. But the Sanhedrin is the law of the land, right? Technically. <clears throat> so why would he... Uh... It appears that this rule went back and forth. In other words, this rule was overturned a few times. There were different Sanhedrins that turned it in different ways. At the time of Boaz, the rule, the Sanhedrin had ruled that they can marry Moabite women. Um, but this issue continued to come up, and later in the days of King David, it's going to come up again. Uh, the Sanhedrin's going to debate it again. So it was debated again and again. So even though it was technically settled law, uh, Think of it like our Roe v. Wade, which we keep discussing the possibility of overturning. So there were still people that were not comfortable with it. And Ploni Almoni says, if I marry Ruth, people may not want to marry my children. Yes, Carol. I don't see how you can have it both ways. The tribe is the paternal lineage for Jewish children. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. So you're on the side of that, the, that which is the law, the halacha, that yes, we are allowed to marry Moabite and Ammonite women. So anyway, so Ploni Almoni refuses. So now we can see, at least, why Ruth went through this long, torturous route to be able to, to propose to Boaz, because she was afraid, Noemi was afraid, that if she would propose through the normal channels, Boaz would also refuse. And so she went through this route um, in order to, while they're alone, um, get Boaz's consent. And once she gets his pledge, then he will be true to his word and he won't back out. And indeed, that is what happens after Ploni Almoni refuses to marry Ruth. Um, Boaz then agrees to marry Ruth. Boaz purchases the field. Um, he tells us a little bit about how he purchased it, gives us some of the laws, what we call Kenyan, how purchases work in Jewish law, and um, then he marries Ruth. Boaz and Ruth have a child. They call that child Oved. Noami is overjoyed finally after so many years of suffering and struggling and loss. Um, she now has a, well, not really a grandchild, but she considers it a grandchild, an adopted grandchild, because she considers Ruth her adopted daughter. And so um, she raises this child, Oved. Oved um, has a son later, grows up, has a son whose name is Yishai, um, in English, Jesse, and he is the father of David. So that is the story of Ruth. Ruth is um, a, our great hero who has um, given up everything. The Midrash actually tells us that Ruth was a princess, a Moabite princess, so has really given up everything to live as a pauper um, in the land of Israel, as a foreigner, knowing perhaps that in Israel itself, of all converts, Moabite converts were considered um, the most problematic, and many people would refuse to marry Moabite converts. She still insists on giving up everything in order to join the Jewish people. Um, she is our example of, um, of an ideal convert and of the prototype convert and to the convert that um, 
uh, and the example, and uh, she ends up also becoming the mother of royalty. Um, her descendant later becomes King David, and that, um, of course, gives Ruth her fame. Um, she becomes famous as a result of her famous great-grandson, David, um, who himself um, later runs into trouble over his great-grandmother's Moabite ancestry. Um, at a point this, during David's life, the Sanhedrin considers overturning the um, rule that Moabite women can marry Jews, which would have declared David as illegitimate. Um, there was some politics behind that, that attempted ruling. Um, and so... The um, and 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 but and so Ruth does become the ancestor of David. She, of course, teaches us the importance of valuing Judaism and the commitment to Judaism. And for each of us who was born, if we were born Jewish, joined the Jewish people, the importance of recognizing the beauty of Judaism and that strong commitment to Judaism. So.